Having taken her father's throne, Sarah Calhoun has fallen out with one of her best allies, and her brother Nathaniel heads into Imperial Philadelphia with a reckless plan. Her uncle Thomas, armed with new powers and new allies, aims to remove Sarah from her throne and from the world of the living. To survive and to gain the strength she needs to fight an impossible war, Sarah must unite the Mound Builder Kings to enact an ancient rite that will propel her beyond mortality. Servant Daughter by DJ Butler is the newest entry in the Dragon Award-winning Witchy War series from Bane Books at banebooks.com. The Bane Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Torsion and Angular Momentum get into a screwed up relationship, but funnel all their love into only child polynomial dodecahedron. November black top hats bloom with rabbits, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor, Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of our interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon talking about 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. The latest entry in the Ring of Fire alternate history series created by Eric Flint. This one follows the adventures of uptimer Captain Eddie Cantrell and Admiral Martin Tromp as they face down the Spanish Navy in the Caribbean and try to establish an age with some equality 300 years earlier than it happened in our timeline, while at the same time turning a profit for the United States of Europe and the Dutch. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, the November Bain eBooks Leap into Leaden sale continues. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's wonderful Leaden Series Universe eBooks are all on sale in November. $2 off on Accepting the Lance, which is regularly $6.99 and it's now $4.99 for the eBook, plus $1 off on all the Bain Leaden Universe Series eBooks. That's a lot of books and uh, that's a lot of savings. Available wherever Bain eBooks are sold and until December frosts come nipping. The November Bain eARCs are here, but what? Wait, uh, well, I was worried about this. Uh, at this point, the alien spiders have breached the perimeter and are heading toward the podcast area. Uh, while we fight them off, we are going to send it out to Austin. Uh, to Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sharad. Um, David, tell us about the uh, <clears throat> November EARCs while we deal with the situation. Ooh, hey everybody, David F. Sharad here. I was in the back room uh, of my soundproof bunker here somewhere deep in the heart of Texas, and I got a text message from Tony I guess uh, I guess things are looking a little rough at the Bain offices. Tony, hope you guys get that taken care of. Uh, in the meantime, he wanted me to talk to you about the November eARCs. Now, I think you guys are going to really enjoy these. It's something a lot of you have been asking for, because as we all know, eARC stands for Extremely Airtight Resealable Container. And just in time for the holiday season, Bain is proud to announce Bain branded eARCs. These are completely airtight containers. They come in a variety of colors and sizes. And oh, hang on. I'm uh, hang. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not very professional. I'm getting another text from Tony. It's a little hard to read. I think he's shooting with one hand and typing with the other. Uh, but okay. All right. Yeah, I was not supposed to talk about that. That is not a thing that is happening. I apologize. That's not what EARC stands for. EARC stands for Electronic 
advanced readers copy or electronic advanced review copies, also called galleys, uh, uncorrected page proofs. These are the, um, the books, not in their final form that we send out to reviewers so they have time to review them uh, for various publications. And Bain makes those available in electronic format to you. They're available now on Bain.com. And this is what we've got for November, some really exciting stuff. First up, we have Gunrunner by Larry Correa and John D. Brown. Once Jackson Rook was a war hero, but that was a long time ago on a world very far away. Now Rook is a criminal, a smuggler on board multi-purpose supply vehicle Tar Heel. His mission, steal a top of the line mech and deliver it to the far-flung planet Swindle, a world so hostile to everything decent that even the air will kill you. But for all Rook's mercenary ways, there is a sense of rust justice within him. He is no pirate. He does not bow to tyrants. It seems that deep within the smuggler, the heart of a warrior still beats. And when that warrior reawakens, the galaxy will tremble. Next up is Tiger Bright by T.C. McCarthy. San Kyar is a noviate within a secretive holy order tasked by fleet to infiltrate the home world of mankind's most dangerous enemy, the Saman. If caught, her mission will bring war to Earth long before humanity is ready to confront this implacable enemy. To make matters worse, a competing faction within fleet learns of the clandestine assignment and sends San's brother to destroy her. Now San must confront the constant threat of alien annihilation. She must deal with heart-rending human treachery and intrigue. Most of all, she must adapt and survive as she finds herself transforming into a being that is perhaps beyond human nature itself. Next, Blood and Whispers by A.C. Haskins. Thomas Quinn is a sorcerer haunted by the memories of the things he's done over centuries of service to the Arcanum. He has long retired from that life, running an occult shop in Philadelphia for the past several decades, wanting nothing more than to be left alone with his books and his whiskey and his shame. But when two detectives come to his door asking about a brutal ritual murder in his city, Quinn must reluctantly take up the mantle of Sorcerer of the Arcanum once more. Thomas Quinn was prepared to fight rogue sorcerers and fey monsters, but the greatest threat he faces may be his own inner demon. And The Jupiter Knife by D.J. Butler and Aaron Michael Ritchie. Southeastern Utah, 1934. A dark and ancient conspiracy is afoot in a small town set amid endless hills of warped and twisted sandstone. Local law enforcement seems powerless to stop a murderous magic from claiming victim after victim. Unraveling the plot will require a man of skill, a man equally at ease with magic and reason, a good man, a man of humility, but also a cunning man. Hiram Woolley has these qualities, but his practiced command of folkloric magic may have met its match when faced with a primeval curse as old as human history itself. And that's the November eARCs, available now at bain.com. Um, I don't really know how long, oh, hang on, hang on, one more text message. Oh. Okay. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. All right. So it turns out it was a big misunderstanding. Those alien spiders or insects or whatever they were, they were just big Bane Books fans. So Tony set them up with some swag and sent them on their way and he's ready to take back over the podcast. Tony, back to you. Okay. We have contained the alien incursion for the moment. Woo. Yes. So yay. And check out Bane eARCs and help us fight alien domination. This is part one of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing 1637 No Peace Beyond the Line. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Well, welcome, Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, Eric and Chuck. Back. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? 
Uh, Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction and lots of other things. With uh, three million books in print, he's the author, created probably more like four now, five uh, of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with the first novel, 1632, and um, building up to the one we're going to talk about today. With David Drake, he has written six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series, and with David Weber, collaborated on the Crown of Slaves subseries in the Honor Harrington uh, big gigantic series and just enormous amount of other books. It, it would be, take us all day to list um, lots and lots of stuff. Eric was for many years also a labor union activist uh, who lives near Chicago, Illinois, but in the meaningless uh, state of Indiana where his vote doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Charles E. Gannon. Chuck is the author of the Compton Crook. Uh, is the author of the Compton Crook Award-winning Nebula-nominated Kane Reorden series, starting with uh, first entry, Fire with Fire. Now we are up to uh, I think it's book five, uh, Mark of Kane. Um, he is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Papal Stakes, 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Um, what's the? There's another. Vatican 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 Sanctions. Vatican Sanctions. Vatican Sanctions, yeah. Um, Steve White, co-author of the Starfire series entries um, that he's done, and he is the author of multiple short stories, um, some really great um, short stories and novellas as well, um, and a bunch of other stuff. He is a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, and has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. Um, a former professor Chuck now lives in Annapolis, Maryland with his wife and children. Um, out now at Booksellers is 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line, the latest entry. Here it is, beautiful uh, Tom Kidd cover, as usual. Um, the uh, latest entry in the Ring of Fire series and the sequel, this is the follow-up book to 1636 Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. Um, so let's talk about that. Is that Hornblower is very much coming up in a established, pretty rigid, stratified society that he's moving himself up in, and he's doing it kind of from the outside. He, he you know, he's, he's he's I've forgotten his exact background, but I mean, he's he's not exactly a poor kid. But I mean, you know, he's got nothing in his favor. He's he's got to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. It's part of why readers tend to root for him. Um, but he's not trying to change anything. Um, I mean, he is not in any sense whatsoever what you'd call a revolutionary. In fact, he's actually fighting on the side of the British Empire, which was trying to crush a revolution. Um, although, granted, the French Revolution, by the time you get to Bonaparte, has gone pretty sour. But still, um, there's nothing radical at all about about Hornblower. His own personal attitudes are, are, I don't know if you'd call them progressive because the term doesn't really mean much in that era, but you know, I mean, he's a pretty decent person as far as how he looks at people, but Eddie's something different. I mean, he does come from the future. He does come from a world which being blunt about it is a hell of a lot better than the world was then, which it was, which it is. Um, I mean, people can criticize our modern world all you want, and I, I, yeah. I, I have often led to charge criticizing them, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'm a political activist for decades, but let's not kid ourselves. I mean, you know, this is way better than it was, you know, in the 17th century. Yeah. When you died of gangrene? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. not just that, but even, uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I understand, of course. Aside, it, it's socially. I mean, um, I, I tried to portray this, I think I did a good job on 1632, just the extent to which. Yeah. The, the, just the assumptions American have that everybody's life is worth something. And, you know, that's not the assumption that people grew up in 400 years ago. And I think, I think also the fact that here you are in what would be considered an economically depressed part of, an, of America that comes forward you know, back into time, and it's, and it's a mecca. 
you know, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, a center yeah, of possibility. Yeah. It has indoor plumbing. It yeah. has all the stuff that, that's like people can't even yeah. understand. You, you flick a switch and the sun comes on, and, you know. And in that, in all of that, you have these four guys, as, as, as uh, Eric was mentioning, and they're all players of D&D. Yeah. <laughs> and all players of war games, which means something. Despite the, quote, comparative impoverishment, they lived in a time that not only made it possible to dream, but that was filled with literature and notions and ideas that encouraged you to dream. And I think that's one of the things about Eddie is that he is a dreamer. He's an idealist, and he actually sort of has, as he looks at the world around him, you know, I think if you came from Hornblower's existence or if you came from this time, you'd say, well, that's all well and good to think about, but it, the world is never going to be like that. And Eddie's this guy who's like, yeah, but I'm the living proof that it did get to be like that, yeah. at least a lot more than it was in your time. And come along with me, you know, and he, that he's that guy. And he's huge fun to write as a result of that. The, well, the part of me that never grew up is definitely what I'm channeling with, with Eddie. And there's probably a large part of me that never grew up anyhow. So it, I guess yeah. it was a good fit. Well, he is, he's a happy-go-lucky. I mean, he's, he, I'm not saying yeah. he has Hornblower's character. Um, he's a, he's, he's, a, a, a he's enthusiastic and idealistic and optimistic. But, but he's also reflective. Yeah, he, he will look around him and he will say wow, you know, this is crap, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm part of it, and I got to watch out how this, how this goes. That's one of the, th the other differences. I mean, Hornblower, mm -hmm. how much time does he have to really be reflective in any sort of sense of, I want the world to be different. I want to be a force mm -hmm. for fill in the blank. Well, he's That's just trying to get prizes. There, there is one feature, it's true with Eddie, it's, it was true in a different way of Jeff Higgins. It's true of another one of these uh, youngsters who becomes major characters, um, brothers, Frank Stone and his younger brother, uh, Ron Stone and Jerry Stone. Not one of these guys has the mindset of the captain of the football team yep. or the high school in crowd. I mean, they're all one way or another people who, were considered themselves, you know, as teenagers, kind of outsiders. Um, yeah. Um, That's the great fun of, I mean, a lot of characters oh, well, sure. in the I mean, yeah. series are like that. They're just but like, there's, a, there's a believable aspect to that as well. I mean, now, first of all, there are a lot of extraordinary scholar-athletes. So let's just, and, and I think Tom, Tom Simpson is an example of, of one of those individuals. But the thing that, that the real turnaround is, so if you're not part of the, 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 the you know, the letter-wearing uh, 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 varsity group, if you will, how are you making your mark? What are you trying to do? You probably are trying to do better in classes. You're probably hoping to go to college. And guess what? When you come back to 1632, what is the more rare skill? You've got lots of people who are even more aggressive far more aggressive. Probably most people in some level are ready to be far more aggressive than, than what, what sports will teach you to do because it's their lives on the line. And this is the middle of the 30, 30 bloody years war. What's, what's unusual is the ones who've said, oh yeah, I read about that. Oh yeah, I could, I could bone up on, on you know, Archimedean screws and the, you know, just the stuff. It's like, there goes the nerd, except for the nerds are the ones who actually are the they're the the pearls of great price absolutely and and i think we should be the pearls of great price today too but <laughs> in, in our regular lives but people don't always see it that way so <laughs> what is uh talk about the technology and the warfare because that's a big part of the book and it's the fun stuff you know eric was alluding to all the great not notological stuff um talk a little bit about the way battles are fought and the way that the new technology that's been introduced affects that well the thing let me i'll let chuck's going to do most of the talking on this because <laughs> he was the one who did most of the work on it but and i was really more kind of on the sideline cheering them on and advising where possible. But um, what I found most striking about it, and this this goes all the way back actually to the work I was doing, David Weber in 1633, is 
you can combine, but it, it's even more striking. It was in, uh, in, in Commander Cantrell, too. You've got these incredibly powerful and incredibly accurate guns perched on top of ships that are nowhere near as advanced and with guidance mechanisms that are nowhere near as advanced. And then you've got to figure out how to adjust mesh 20th century and 17th century naval tactics to make this work. And, and that's what was really fascinating about, about, especially in this book, more, more I think than in Cantrell, is the extent to which what made the huge difference was actually, there's a way in which the guns are kind of, okay, fine, they're what do the final deed, but it's everything else that's what matters. It's having a balloon up there so you can see farther than other people do. It's having radios and communication so you can stay in touch with each other as you know where other people can't. And it's having the 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 uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's a point that you know just just organizing yourself to have a tactical board where you're you're actually keeping track of where things are going. This was not in, in 1633, and David Weber wrote this passage, and I really liked it, was, was he was describing the Dutch tactics at the Battle of Dunkirk, and it was basically what it was, which was just, let's pile on. It was just kind of, you know. It's a scrub with sail. Scrub. I mean, <laughs> it really was. It was there was no line tactics. There was, there was not even 18th century tactics. It was just, there they are. Let's go get them, guys. And, and. And because the Dutch were very good sailors and very aggressive. Uh, I mean, nowadays we don't think of Dutch people as being really aggressive, but in those days they were. Uh, and this is a very different kind of warfare. It's much more cerebral. <coughs> Cold-blooded, if you want to call it that. And I think we did a good job. And again, I'll forgive you. Chuck the credit for this in depicting that in 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 Cantrell. I mean, in uh, well, in Cantrell, but also I think particularly in No Peace Beyond the Line because we have some big battle scenes there. Um, um, and I will stop there, so I'm going to let Chuck talk more about it. But that's what I thought was was what we were trying to get across was that there's no magic wands here. You have to actually figure out how to make this stuff work together, and it's. <coughs> one of the things is you got these incredibly accurate guns, but if you can't get it to work where you fire the trigger on the right time, the gun's accuracy is not going to matter because the ship is in the wrong angle and it's going to go off somewhere. So between roll pitch and yaw, um, you know, even a, even a glass smooth sea, which is almost a contradiction in terms when you're talking about an ocean, um, means that you are timing the swells. And if you're dealing with, you know, here's the other thing, you're on wind power, which means that the same thing that's actually moving you, now you have the problem that it's not just moving you forward, it's pushing you around a bit. So you're adding all these things in. And this was a scene that was set up all the way back in Commander Cantrell because I, you know, I, this was where we were headed, uh, that they're, they're testing the guns and the guns are great. But the problem is you can't even get the fuse to burn fast enough. Mm -hmm. Even a percussion cap is not going to discharge the gun quickly enough for you to be, and you also, you're guessing where the role is going to be. It is not a matter of do it now. It's like, it's like if, you, if anybody out there is familiar with skeet or, or, or anything, if you're throwing a football, you never throw where the person is. You are essentially looking at the vector, the speed, and you're anticipating flight time to get it there. Now, what happens in this book, and it is a book and a half and coming and damn close to uh, 300,000 words. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you want to take Commander Cantrell and then how long, well, that one itself. But um, what I'm saying is that from very early on in Commander Cantrell, and I wanted to do it early because I wanted it not to be one of those, ah, we, we've solved it right away sort of, sort of solutions. This had to come about as a result of, you know, the, it is the second wave of test ships that comes over 
that says, okay, we finally had enough money, we had enough time, we had enough opportunity to essentially create what's called an inclinometer, which is still the way, you know, that, that was the, the method of aiming guns, most guns, except for the ones that were radar directed up through World War II and even later, which basically is, it's a, if you want to think of it as a gyroscope, basically telling you, okay, you're on target now. And when you've got two things that align, where you want the shell to go and where the gun is actually aimed, at that moment, if, you have, if, you've, if you've got a positive control, in other words, if you've got the trigger already pulled electrically, that will send the pulse that fires the electric ignition. That gives you really high speed reaction time. And that becomes, it, there's a dueling, there's a dueling um, tech war. As, as strange as that may sound in this period of time, because the Spanish are also responding. The Spanish are, and, and one of the great enjoyments for me to write was the Spanish, particularly what I'll call the brain trusters mm -hmm. in Cuba and Santo Domingo who were saying, you know what, if we keep taking orders from Madrid and the Escorial, we're dead because they are not seeing what we're seeing. They don't real, they, they think they can just, it you know, to put it in 20th century terms, it's like Hitler giving orders to divisions which have ceased to exist. And they realize, okay, and in a sense, they see that there's an advantage when La Flota is going to be delayed for a whole year at a time when Spain can ill afford not to get its annual influx of silver, they actually see themselves as having an opportunity, which is if you can't tell us what to do because you didn't even send something to us, you're going to have to send something again. And that means you're going to have to, you're going to have to give us more play here. And they get very creative in that. They start uh, at this time, by the way, historically, Olivares, who was probably single-handedly the biggest disaster to Spanish interests globally and at home and economically, um, at, in this time period, uh, arguably a brilliant guy, but just not brilliant enough, evidently. And um, he had actually forbade Havana used to be the the most active shipyard, with the except with two exceptions in the entirety of the Spanish Empire at this time. And because too much business was going out of Spain and was being conducted in the New World, he essentially, in order to uh, in order to to um, to make good the, prom the, the implicit promises of, of, uh, of grandees and sinecure basically said to Havana, you don't make ships beyond a certain size anymore, which were essentially like advice packets. And what happens in this is they say, no, we're building them and we ain't building galleons. We're seeing what the, what, what's called a frigate design does, how much faster it is, how much better it is in the wind. It doesn't have to get you know, something coming very tightly over the back quarters in order to move forward. It, it combines the best of, if you will, um, uh, fore and aft rigged and square rigged. And, and they're, they're going on their own plan. But as they're bringing that technology in, which is changing the game potentially, Eddie and, and the next flotilla has brought in new technology as well. One of the new pieces of technology, and it goes back to what Eric, Eric was talking about uh, regarding uh, all the things that you don't think of. I think when people think about military outcomes, they tend to think about um, how big are the guns, how big are the ships, how many people. Actually, the lessons of the 20th century say, and think about the helicopter for a second. I know it's going to sound like, what? The helicopter changed the nature of war in Vietnam and other places because all of a sudden you could concentrate or remove force with such speed that it, it, was, it was what's called in, in military circles a, a force multiplier. In other words, I can get a company, a battalion, a brigade on site in hours rather than days and, that, and pull them out if they're in threat, which means I can, I can potentially you know, take surrounded people out of certain you know, extermination, out of the zone of certain extermination. Well, to some degree, that's what's going on. And it's not, only, it's not just the, the radio between the ships, it's the balloons way up high, which are, which are turning what is normally, let's say, about a 30-mile horizon from, the, from a crow's nest and pushing it out to 60 or 70 in some cases. But then there's a telegraph wire that comes down from the balloon to the ship so that it, any ship that has a balloon, because they don't all, only one or two, but that because the information comes down as fast as lightning, so to speak, 
it can then be sent by radio as fast as lightning. And those ships that don't have radios, they've also introduced what's called the Aldous lamp. The Aldous lamp, you'll, you'll, if, you, if you've seen World War II movies, those are those lamps where they're flickering the, the, the louvers up and down. This, this is a very effective form of heliograph, except in really bad weather conditions. And, and this is what Simpson and Eddie bring, this notion of if we have information, if we can see further, oh, and then we have downtime built crude, heavy steam engines that can be retrofit into what are equivalently, equivalent ocean-going tugs. Well, if we can see somebody 60 nautical miles away or even 40 nautical miles away, and we can, only, and we can pull ships at two knots constant, the bottom line is there's no formation they're going to come to us with that we will not have seen ahead of time and we will not have separated our forces in a way to take advantage of it, given prevailing wind and everything else. And mm. this is this is how they're winning battles. They're, they you got the uh, it, you have steam tugs that can can place those ships exactly. In, they have perspective. The good guys are Eddie yep. and, and Trump, and the other guys are are fighting in a fog in a, in a sense of, of yeah. information at least. Absolutely. So the, that's one of the fun things about uh, – there's a great scene in the book that I, I can't remember is Trump or Eddie um, where one of the defeated captains comes on board and, they, and, and it suddenly occurs to them, we better not show them how we do this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I think that's when the uh, surviving Admiral of La Flotta comes on after the Battle of Dominica. Uh, and it might be then. I think that's it. And I, I think, think the I idea think is, is... I think that is it, yeah. Yeah, it, the Admiral it, won't understand, but as, but as I think it's Sehested, and who, who, who shows his worth for being there, says, if I came on board, I wouldn't know what all those things mean, but I'd have seen that glass plate. I'd have seen those grease pencils. I'd have seen the map underneath it. I would have seen all those speaking tubes. I would have gone back and simply described it. And guess what? Spain has enough smart people that they'd be able to, if you will, from a, from a sort of intellectual standpoint, they'd reverse engineer what most of that meant. And we've just given up our method. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I forgot what they did. They, they covered it up? or uh, I think, they, no, what they did is they said they were going to meet him up on the, um, up on the, the, uh, the, qu the quarterdeck, the aft quarterdeck. And he said, no, we're not going to meet him there because that's where all that stuff is. So we're, they kept them away from, if you will, the nerve center. Yeah. Don't show them how the magic works. <laughs> Absolutely. Let them think it's magic. Yeah. The problem with magic is you never know when you got to beat, you know, make it a mystery. Yeah. So uh, what, what are you guys working on now? What's going on in, in your, your writing? Well, um, the next mainline book, which will be the sequel to Polish Maelstrom, there's actually going to be two. The, the mainline for the first time since we began a series is going to actually bifurcate. Um, and the reason is because one of the things that's always defined the mainline books is, is four main characters who are in all of them. And that's uh, Mike Stearns, Rebecca Bravenel, Gretchen Richter, and Jeff Higgins. But because of what Chuck and I are going to be doing, there's no real place for, for Gretchen and Jeff. So I'm in the process of writing a, a, second, a separate novel with Robert Waters that will follow their adventures, uh, which I won't get into here. Uh, what Chuck and I are going to be doing is, um, as people will see when they read um, No Peace Beyond the Line, it ends a certain way. And, and that certain way there's a reason we couldn't do the next mainline book till we'd written this because it sets up part of it. And what happens in the next mainline book, um, and, and, and Chuck and I will each write about half of it. Uh, and basically Chuck is going to follow the, the naval side of it focused on Admiral Simpson. And I will write, the land part of it focused on Mike Stearns. And I'm not going to say anything more about it because we have to get into the plot, but um, it will be taking place in the Mediterranean. And um, 
I don't think I want to say, do I, Chuck? Do I want to say? I, I, I think that may be just about. Just I about think I'm going to leave it right there. It'd be a really good book. Uh, um, and people will see where this book, No Peace Beyond Line, will, will fit into that. Um, and I will not say anything more about that. Did um, you finish up the, uh, the next Victor and. Uh, I'm working on it. I, 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 yeah, I've got quite a bit of it written. Um, it's I had to suspend it though because um, 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 Bain moved up the publication date of the next 1632 book, The Peacock Throne. I thought it was going to be coming out later, and but instead it's coming out in May, which means uh, I've got to finish it. So um, um, we've got it close to finish, but uh, Griff and I. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm writing a grip barber. Griff and I. Right. Just, um, that's the uh, India book. Uh, that's a, that's the sequel to Mission to Mughals, yeah. and uh, it's really. Well, good. I'm glad you can tell me the uh, the 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 in the date that that's going to get turned in because I got to figure out whether I can use that copy editor. I think I can. If you're not going to have it done. Well, I I, I had told Jim I'd have it ready by. In fact, I just got an email from him. He's probably wondering. I was supposed to have it done by now. It's not going to happen. I'm going to need another couple of weeks. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had to work out with Griff exactly how he wanted to end it because he had not finished it. He did most of the first draft, but hadn't finished it. And and looking at it, I realized that that where we'd originally thought of ending it isn't going to work right dramatically. So we actually need to close it off now. Yeah. Well, yeah, you should work on that next. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I mean, the point we is, just this, coming, this is coming okay. out in May, whereas yeah. um, Bain is, is wants to put out the, um, the, the um, Honorverse book in October. So there's a five-month difference, and, um, you know, I'm going to do this one first, and, and then I've actually got to write my short story for Grandpa Gazette 9, because that's all... That's coming out in July, and that's the only thing that's left on there, but I won't take long. It's just a short story. And then I will go back to work on the Honorverse book. But um, I, we're well into it. I mean, it's not like we're just starting. Um, um, I'd say it's, well, it's hard to know working with David um, exactly how long it's going to be. Working with David is a lot like working with Chuck. Uh, your, your estimates of how long a book is going to be keep expanding. Uh, Chuck has gotten more economical over the yes, years. Yes, he has. He um, is, uh, you could he's say turned into a damn fine Weber, quick too, storyteller, but, if you ask me. Neither one of them is what you would call a a, <laughs> a, 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 a terse. Let's put yeah. it this way, okay? The longest <laughs> book I've ever there. written solo was The mm -hmm. Ottoman Onslaught, which came in at 195,000 words, Okay. I'm not sure Chuck and I have ever written a book that short. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think um, Commander Cantrell is right about there, like three thousand words less than that. Uh, all right. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that, I mean, this is stakes was way over two hundred thousand. Well, these are this yeah, book yeah, is so over. So was this? This one was much longer. Actually, um, uh, Vatican Sanction came in at like that, one. Yeah, that, yeah, Vatican Sanction is fairly sh short, but Vatican Sanction takes place over seven days. Yes. Okay. So, but a, a lot of a lot of that also has to do with the fact that you know the the interesting thing about this novel, No Peace Beyond the Line, is that it was proposed. Eric wanted to know where I thought this novel would go along with the proposal for Commander Cantrell, which made a lot of sense in a lot of ways because Commander Cantrell was going to logically end with sort of all things in the balance. And you kind of want to know what that means so that you can maybe put threads that are going to show up meaningfully in the resolution to that. So part of the issue here is that I made plans Commander Cantrell came out, I believe, in 2014. I was writing this stuff for Eric in 2011 and 2012, right on the heels of finishing off Papal Stakes. Well, since then, I've realized that... that so I'll say this. Um, I tend to think in long arcs. And I, I, 
I, I guess I'm enamored of all the things you can do and this tapestry you can build and the sense of falling further and further into the world. Of course, you fall further and further behind your deadlines. So um, one of the things that I, I wound up doing, and I think what you may be referring to, Tony, is that I've become kind of bloody minded about, about I'll sit there and I won't stop that process of what is the great arc, but I will start looking and saying, yeah, but I can't do all of that. I've got to find the point where I can clip that with it, with it being an, an, a good handoff, an energetic handoff to the next book, but not that it necessitates finishing it all right there, um, which was not something I appreciated as a, uh, as a less experienced novelist uh, in, uh, in 2012. Uh, a, a few books under my belt since then. It, and, it is uh, something you, you've got to learn. It's, it's actually basically what happened in the last week when I've, Griff and I have had an extensive discussion back and forth and writing out outlines of how to end Peacock Throne. It's very much what Chuck's describing. Is the original outline, when you look at it, it's like, no, nah, that's not going to work the way it is. We're going to have to save most of that for the next book, and uh, most of the ending of it. And, and, but however, there's a really good way to end this one. See, the thing about it is if you're writing a series, especially a long series like this, uh, people are kind of always going to accuse you of ending on a cliffhanger because no one novel is going to end it um, just kind of by the nature of the series. But there are cliffhangers and cliffhangers, and there are cliffhangers that readers will accept, and, 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 and then there are the ones they won't forgive you for, um, or at least they may forgive you, but they're going to be really pissed at you. And, and the trick is knowing the difference and knowing how to do it. And um, you've got to, f the, no piece beyond line ends on a cliffhanger. Um, um, there's no other way to describe it, but I think it's a cliffhanger readers will accept. Yeah. Well, we get a lot of resolution in, I mean, I, this you is do. a book you, you can, and because of, of the, resolved, it's I, just that, oh, you well. Can, um, you can, you can, I mean, there's an art to this book that, um, yeah. You know, yeah. you can sit there, you can just pick it up and read it. You don't have to be, you could start the series there you if can. you wanted to. I try as much as possible. Um, um, yeah. I, and this is advice I got from David Drake early in my career. Uh, he said, whenever you're writing a book, including a book in a series, he said, uh, imagine that your reader is someone rushing to catch a plane to Tokyo. And they just have time to race into the, you know, the newsstand and grab a book and they do it just by looking at the cover. Oh, that looks good. And they grab it and get on a plane. And then they discover they can't make any sense out of the book. He said, they will remember your name. <laughs> uh, so I try to make sure that every novel, even a novel in a series as immense and sprawling and complex 1632 series that, that anybody can pick up any book in that series and make sense of the book. You know, I mean, you'll realize, oh, okay, obviously this is a huge backstory to it, but they can understand what's happening in the book. They can follow the story arc. The characters are understandable. You know, and in that sense, the book's a standalone. It's not a standalone in, in the sense you'd normally think of, but it's a standalone in the sense you don't have to have read anything else to be able to understand that book. Yeah. And if you That's can something do that, huh? That's something that I've tried to do also. The Kane Riordan series, this yeah, one, yeah, the bottom no, line yeah, is yeah. the most important choice you make it, for, my, for my money in terms of structure is what is the first scene? The first scene has got to be interesting. At, it, optimally, it will have some action in it, but it also has to create a, an environment where, for some reason, somebody is having to impart enough information to somebody else that it is completely reasonable, it is urgent, it is not a briefing room scene, and yet by the time you're done with that, you're oriented enough to say, okay, and on, and, and that's good, and, and I'm going to be interested to see where that goes. That's a really, really essential step. And, and the thing that, that, the reason I brought up the whole thing about where do you stop books is that No Peace Beyond the Line shows what I would say its pedigree of having been designed in 2012. Because we, there was a point you had to get to by the end of this book. And there were things that had to be done by certain characters in this book that could not be kicked further down the road. There were things that could have been in there that originally I had, I had thought might be there. 
but I didn't realize how much, quite frankly, I was surprised by the amount of really, for me, fascinating copy. I did there, the, 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 the engagement with La Flotta in the beginning of this book um, is moves pretty quickly, but there's a lot of copy for that because it really does set up. It reprises all of the necessary technology you needed to know from the prior book, move it forward. And, and it, it really is a pivotal moment for strategically. It is an absolutely <laughs> pivotal moment in terms of the new world. So it, it earns its place, but I, but I was, ne I didn't, I never saw it, can, it, it taking up as much space as it did. Now, I, I would have seen that coming. Uh, and I, I agree with Eric. I think there's a real difference between, to me, when I think of cliffhanger, I think, it, this goes back to what you were saying too, Tony, that there's a sense that the, the threads that have been introduced, those arcs have come to a completion. If they kick off an, uh, the, the promise of a new arc, that's fine. I think that's a moment where, where, where you'll get, and, and maybe, maybe people will respond to this and, and say, no, Gannon, you're wrong. This is what I hate about you. It's, it's one of the many things. Um, but that they, they're, they're feeling, a lot of people will say, but damn it, now there's a new thing happening. It's like, yeah, but if you didn't feel that way, I'll bet you wouldn't be as eager to buy the next book. But you got, but, but I delivered on what I promised. I'm also potentially promising the, the, there is only the promise of something to come. So I baited a hook, but I haven't started cooking the dinner. And I think people are okay with that. And I think what a lot of readers may not realize, and they don't have to, is that if they didn't feel a sense of like, oh, now, now I want to know what happens next. I'm not sure we tell as many books. It's when people come away and saying, you put a gun over the fireplace and you never took it down and shot it. <laughs> Now, damn it, I want to know what's going on with the gun. Now, oh, at that point, amazing. they probably got a point, you know? Right. So, so um, what is, what's, your solo, what's your solo stuff going on right now? I want to make sure we get it, that in. Uh, so, really quickly, just turned in the second. It's solo. It's set in, in John Ringo's Black Tide uh, Rising universe, but the second book in that dyad uh, was turned in about a month ago. Uh, it is, uh, it follows on at the end of the world. It is at the end of the journey. Um, I then just turned in. I think those are wonderful books, by the way. I mean, those are, those are very economical and pretty short. Uh, they, they are. And a lot of that though, is when you don't, okay. So when you're dealing in an, you know, in an epistolary format and you're dealing with only one or two consciousnesses and you don't mm -hmm. have. What's that guy's name? Alvaro. Well, I mean, he's the main character. Yeah. Yeah. The, the main characters are, they have, they have the, the, the world exposure and experience of 17 and 18 year olds. They're, they're in a complete, they, there is no larger universe. The thing about universes where there are power structures is that clever, canny, greedy, you know, nefarious adults have created, you know, architectures to preserve and spread power which if you're going to portray them realistically, uh, you, you know, they, they actually, they're difficult, to, they're difficult to deal with. They're difficult to get to the bottom of. Uh, people understand the use of feints, deep feints. And if you're going to portray that in a believable fashion, I'm not going to say realistic because that's a whole other issue. But if the verisimilitude is sufficient, you've got to, you got to embrace that. These books didn't have that. And then I put them in first person voice and they're 17 year olds. This was, this was easy to do in short format. And I think actually to some degree, epistolary format wants to stay short because it, you know, I think if you have an interesting voice as an, as a third person limited narrator, uh, people, people kind of like to see where you go. It's, it's sort of like a, it can be a travelogue. It can be the, the encounter of new ideas in a science fiction or even a, you know, in an alternate history setting. And people come along for that and they come along for the voice. But when the voice is somebody, one voice, uh, one worldview seen through that, that narrow pipe, you got to get in and out of that pretty quickly, I think. Uh, you, you would be ill-served, perhaps, uh, by, by modern readership standards to stay too mm. long in that place. And they're fighting <laughs> zombies. Which Pardon is, me? And they're fighting. Well, yeah, pseudo zombie. Um, so the other, th so what I'm working on now, I just finished. As a matter of fact, um, it is a, it is set in the Cain Riordan universe. It is coming out through Beyond Terra Press. Uh, Chris Kennedy with uh, 
Uh, Tony Weisskopf's Not Merely Approval, but Blessing is something called Murphy's Lawless. It is a novel, uh, and it is, uh, it is, uh, it should be out the very first, it'll be out a month from now. Uh, it is a, it is a goat choker because it formulates around, um, six, 25 to 30,000 word novellas, which are not, this is not an anthology. This is not a collection. They have been crafted into a novel. I wrote about 40, 45,000 words of not merely bridging material, but a lot of the stuff that's sort of happening in the margins and makes the, the larger, makes the, the story make sense in a larger sort of framework is there. Right now, what I'm working on and loving it is uh, the first novel. Uh, I, I'm, talk, about, talk about getting used to your own habits. Since I write long, um, but, and, and since writing a 120 or 130,000 word novel for me is really frustrating simply because, damn it, I'm just hitting my stride. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm basic, basically looking at those stories and I'm saying, okay, plan on writing two back to back. In other words, what I used to think of as one excessively long arc, I'm now designing as two books with a very clear midpoint. So I get two books out of one, which also have clear. Yeah. So you only have to run two fifty Ks. That's right. Completely. I mean, you're already sweaty. What the hell? Why bother to stop and take a shower? So, um, so in this case, uh, the first one, this is the, um, the epic fantasy series, or is it, uh, called um, The Vortex of Worlds. Uh, the first one is the one I'm working on right now that is called um, This Broken World. And the sec second one, which I will roll straight into after that, is um, this uh, Into the Vortex. And the first one should be turned in by the end of December or midpoint through January. So it actually, according to Tony, is going to be on the 2021 schedule. Uh, I'm really delighted with that. I'm really excited about this. I'm having a huge amount of fun with this. And all I'm going to say is you guys are going to have fun with the dragon. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, out now at booksellers everywhere. Oh, wait. And one other thing. Oh, one, one other, other thing. thing. You got more. <laughs> then, then in addition right. to the fact that there's, there's, there's a duel that will go on. Do we start on this, this main line that Eric and I are collaborating first, or do we start on the reverse where he's actually collaborating in the Kane Riordan universe, uh, a novel called Triage. Yeah. So we'll see how it all works out, but that also is coming well, soon to a Bane shelf near you. I've got, yeah, Chuck has to tell me when he's ready to do it, because I've got, after I finish the Honorverse book, I've got two things I have to do. One of them is the, the third book in the Sam Houston series, which is long overdue, which is sequel to 18 right. Arkansas 18. War. Yeah. And the other is the third book in the Joe's World series, which I've been sitting on for years. I've got 80,000 words of written and, and, you know, which is about two thirds of it. And that's called a desperate and despicable dwarf. And I've got to, the, I'm not sure of the order in which I'll do those. Oh, before I do either one of them, I've got to write a novella of, uh, called uh, 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 an angel, uh, the, an angel named Peterbilt, um, which is designed to be coupled with Kevin Eikenberry's novel, The Crossing, which is a, a C.D. Shard novel, and we're going to package them together. Mine is a spin-off from his novel. It's a different story, but I've got to do that first because I don't want to tie up Kevin. Uh, well, I think it's pretty certain that we'll be working on triage before we're working <laughs> on the uh, the mainstream novel then because I've got a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, we'll just see. Uh, neither one of us is short of work. That's, yeah, that's, that, that's what I love. That's what I love. Every Any author who complains about having too much work really mm -hmm. hasn't thought. I, I always want to say to them, now I want you to say that out loud and listen to yourself. Okay? I, I, I have too much work. I'm an author. I'm in entertainment and I have too much work. Really? Yeah, I com I complained very early in my career. I was working a full-time job machine shop 60 hours a week plus writing the Belisarius books and which I was producing two a year and it was a brutal work schedule and I, I made the mistake of whining about it to David Drake and do not whine to David Drake. He's about the most unsympathetic audience I can imagine. And, no and, and his reaction was, Eric, there's only two states of condition for a freelance fiction writer. You either got too much work or too little. Which would you prefer? There you go. And, and it's like, well, if you put it that way, 
yeah, I'd rather have too much work. Yeah. Well, um, it sounds like you're going to be doing triage on <laughs> on all of this over the next few months, both of you. Yeah. Um, let me let me get us out of here. Um, the The book is. Um, 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. It is a wonderful, this is a very adult book, and it's got a lot of explanation and uh, wonderful scene setting, and at the same time, huge action sequences and just so much A lot much of fun. action in this book. So a lot of romance, too. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a great sea, sea tale um, and, and uh, alternate history as well, or science fiction, or whatever the hell 1632 is. So. <laughs> Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, thank you so much for talking with us about uh, No Peace Beyond the Line. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you. That was part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon discussing 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. SLNS Quebec. Task Force 790, Beowulf System. What the hell was that? Vincent Capriotti demanded. Sir, I don't have a clue. Rear Admiral Rutgers was bent over one of Quebec's tactical displays. Now he straightened and shook his head, his expression baffled. It was some kind of energy fire. The recon platforms got a pretty good look at some of it, but I don't have any idea at all what the hell they thought they were shooting at. Whatever it was, it was scattered all around the hypersphere. You mean all around the half of the hypersphere we can see, sir? Commodore Schlegel put in. The ops officer turned towards him, and tf 790s staff intelligence officer shook his head. I've been looking at the distribution of the energy fire we picked up, he said, and looked at Capriotti. Sir, it matches almost perfectly with O&I's estimate of how the Mantis would have to distribute the FTL control platforms Admiral Guion's sources reported. Allowing for the fact that our platforms are only far enough out to see half, a little less really, of the total hypersphere. You're suggesting they decided to blow up their own control platforms? Angelica Helland asked incredulously. No, ma'am. Schlegel faced the chief of staff squarely. I'm only saying that what we've seen correlates exactly with the projected distribution of their fire control systems. And someone was sure as hell shooting at something. He shrugged. I don't have any more idea of who or what it might have been than you do. Helen's expression got no less skeptical, but Capriotti nodded. Not so much in agreement as an acknowledgement of Schlegel's information. But if it wasn't us, then who the hell was it? Angelica's right. There's no way the Mantis and Beowulfers would take out their own defense systems, and it sure as hell wasn't us. But who else would? His thought paused as he remembered another report of Grazer Fire just suddenly appearing out of empty space. No, that was ridiculous. He was getting as paranoid as the Mantis, and yet? How long until the second stage is launched? He asked out loud. The Astas have been ballistic for 23 minutes, sir, Rutgers said. Call it another 24 and a half minutes. Capriotti nodded and leaned back in his command chair, brain whirling. Up until this point, the ops plan had worked perfectly. 
and if somebody really had decided to clear the road for them, the odds of his ship's survival might just have risen. But if there truly was someone with that capability, someone willing to use it against the Mantis, then it was possible the entire Solarian League truly was being used as that someone's puppet, just the way Manticore and its allies claimed it was. And if it was... Move up breakaway, he said, looking at the time display. Reprogram it for execution five minutes before the second stage's launch. He bared his teeth. Five minutes either way won't make a lot of difference to the targets, but given that we don't have any idea what the hell else may be going on around here, I'd just as soon start for home a little earlier. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And a sterilized vacuum bottle of delicious quartz wavicles separated from their particles and ready to deliver a sweet taste that will take you back in time. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude for Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon, authors of 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars, or should I say... Keep reaching for the stars... What if the United States and the Soviet Union had fought on land, sea, air, and the astral plane, struggled for dominion across parallel dimensions, or on the surface of the moon? What wonders would have been unveiled? What terrors would have haunted mankind from those dark and dismal dimensions? Come closer, peer through a glass darkly, and discover the horrifying alternative visions of World War III. From some of today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror, Weird World War III. Available now from Bane Books at BaneBooks.com. Um...